We have two readings this morning. The first is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 11. And the second is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18 to 25. Let's start with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 8, and I'll start reading at verse 18 through to verse 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. Good morning, everyone. Let me lead us in a prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, we thank you for all the gifts you've given to mankind, for our ingenuity, our creativity. But Father, here is a passage which reminds us that we need your wisdom. Please give us your wisdom this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I sent a link uh, this week to a video by a comedian. Do we call him that? Russell Brand. Is he a comedian? Um, but a lively character. You may like him. You may find him profoundly irritating. Uh, I make no comment on that. But he was engaging with the question, why are lots of people Googling, how do I pray? Because apparently that's the case. That's one of the most Googled four things at the moment. How do I pray? And he was asking, why are people wanting to know how to pray? His comment was this. We're looking for a sacred experience. We know that this life is not enough. And now we've been forced into this strange monastic lifestyle, locked up in our houses with lots of beer uh, and childcare as well. Uh, but this scenario forces us to recognize we need a connection to the sacred. This world's not enough. Well, he's not the foremost philosopher of our age, or maybe he is, according to YouTube, I don't know. But this lockdown does force us to engage with that as an issue. Human endeavors in this world, they're bewildering to us, an enigma to us. What are we doing if there's no God and when we die, that's it? What's the point? We do need a connection to the sacred. And that is the message of Ecclesiastes. The question which looms over the whole book is chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil at under the sun? Or in other words, what's left when you die? What's the purpose of your life? What impact have you had upon this planet? What is your legacy? Because over the whole book is the shadow of death and Perhaps you might want to think of it as a, a couple of equations, if that's helpful to you. Uh, the, the writer, the teacher, he keeps saying, toil in this world plus death equals pointless, meaningless, enigma. You can't make sense of it. Toil of this world plus death equals pointless. But, but, toil of this world plus death plus God existing and making an assessment of your life. And we'll see, you get to the New Testament and resurrection life through Jesus. That's different. So about, how about those? I think that sort of sums up where the book is at, really. Toil of this life plus death equals meaningless, if that's all there is. But toil of this life plus death plus God assessing what we do on this earth plus resurrection life through Jesus, the New Testament would say, that's purpose, that's satisfaction, that is meaning. 
Last week, we had the introduction of poem in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 on the recurrent, repetitive nature of life and who will remember you when you're gone. Today, it's a personal. So chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 26, all one section. It's the teacher's personal voyage of discovery. Can I make sense of life? And it's a long section. We'll look at half this week, half next week. But we'll have to look to the end to, uh, to get a hint of where his conclusion is going. We're thinking about wisdom and uh, pleasure. So those two things he really throws himself into. So we can look at chasing the wind of wisdom, then secondly, chasing the wind of pleasure, and then lastly, discovering satisfaction with God. Let's take those in turn then. First, in verses 12 to uh, 18, chasing the wind of pleasure, excuse me, of wisdom, chasing the wind of wisdom. Verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. That brief pause. There can only be two people. Uh, only uh, David and Solomon were king in uh, Jerusalem over the whole nation of Israel. The kingdom split. So it's probably one of those two. Although it never actually says explicitly that it's Solomon writing. And by the time you get to chapter 5th, the, the teacher, he criticizes the king for his misrule, for his exploitation of the poor. Chapter 8, he criticizes the king for uh, sort of lording it over the rest of society, which would be an odd thing to do if you were the king. So it seems as if the teacher who writes most of this book of Ecclesiastes, he, here he's adopting the persona of Solomon to say, were one to become the, the wisest, richest, most successful man that's ever walked the planet. That's still not enough. You still can't work out what the purpose, the meaning of life is. This first little thing has uh, two, two halves to it. First verses 12 to 15. Wisdom, it can't straighten a crooked world. So verse 13. I applied my mind to study. And to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. See, look, wisdom can't straighten a crooked world. What a heavy burden. What a, a bad business God has laid upon mankind. Because this is a fallen, broken world. God made a perfect world, wonderful world, Genesis 1 and 2. But as soon as humanity said, no, we don't need you. We'll make better decisions than you. We'll run this world without you. This world collapsed. It's broken. It's fallen. And so now life in this world, it's, well, a point is a heavy burden, a bad business. And so the teacher describes uh, life in this world as a chasing after the wind. It's a, a great picture, isn't it? You, you try it. You can find any wind. It's quite hot at the moment. But chasing after the wind, this sort of desperate pursuit. You, you can never capture the wind. You can never overtake the wind. You're just chasing it. It's a great picture of unfulfillment. Something that's impossible to conquer. But having thought deeply about life, well, the teacher concludes verse 15, or well, what is crooked cannot be straightened. 
and what is lacking cannot be counted. Or in other words, wisdom is understanding that it's impossible to control life. That's wisdom. We can do lots in this world, but in the end we can't ultimately straighten what is crooked. Wisdom is understanding it's impossible to control life. And most of us know that. We've realised that. The parent whose child is born disabled knows this. The child whose parent has got dementia knows this. The man who awakes from weeks on a ventilator, wondering what's become of his life, he knows this. The woman whose husband does not awake from a ventilator, but dies, she knows this. You can't control life in this world. You can't straighten what is crooked. And part of wisdom is acknowledging that, but trusting that God is in control. And this teacher says, you can be the most brilliant person who's ever walked the planet, but you can't control life. Or verse 15, you, what is lacking cannot be counted. You can't make three add up to 10. You can't take three pound coins and make them do a weekly shop. You can't. Sometimes things just don't work. They're wrong. And you have to recognize that. Wisdom can't straighten a crooked world. But then verses 16 to 18, uh, wisdom may increase your sorrow, I'm afraid. Verse 16, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I am the most brilliant man ever. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind because for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. I've really thought hard about this and I've realised there's no silver bullet. read something the other day, Chris Martin, the, um, uh, the front man of, of Coldplay, uh, observed, this was just before lockdown, observed, the world has become madly obsessed with celebrity culture. And I think the reason is that the real news is just not bearable. And it seems impossible to change anything, make a difference. So we numb ourselves with celebrity culture. Well, I think there may well be truth to that. Let's watch the news. Oh, so depressing. Well, let's look at what the silly, giddy celebrities have done. Their lives sort of shine and oh, that's quite fun, isn't it? It sort, of, it sort of cheers me up a bit more than thinking about real life. And so the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, yeah, I've studied really hard and thought, nothing I can do to change the situation. I'm chasing the wind of wisdom, but I can't catch it. It's verses 12 to 18. Secondly, though, chasing the wind of pleasure, because the teacher here does what most people do when the conversation gets a bit serious and the conversation gets a bit glum. He says, well, let's not get all intense about it. Let's have a few drinks and cheer ourselves up. So that's what he does. Chapter two, I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Oh, 
but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? Uh-oh. But look, verse 3, I tried cheering myself up with wine. Well, lots of people are doing that at the moment. Uh, apparently, alcohol consumption is up 30% in lockdown and what it normally is on this time of the year. Beer, thir- uh, 70%. That's the most popular way of uh, numbing ourselves. So uh, if he was writing this today, no doubt, he'd say, I tried cheering myself up with beer and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I think he's talking about the secular wisdom, like an Epicurean wisdom of the the most important thing is to pursue pleasure in this life here. And then what you get in verses four to nine is a pretty intense experiment in the pursuit of pleasure. He really does his research here. But the striking thing is he tries to be a self-made man. Just in five verses, verses four to nine, 18 times I, 13 my, for me, for myself. So when he goes through it with pleasure, it's me, myself and I. Verse four, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He constructs phenomenally. But what's going on in the background here is there's a a huge number of deliberate echoes of Genesis chapter two, where God creates the Garden of Eden this language of planting, garden, all kinds of fruit trees, reservoirs, flourishing. It's more obvious in the original Hebrew, but it's almost a cut and paste job. He's got a bit lazy, just cut and pasted from Genesis 2. Now, the the point here is I tried to create paradise myself. I tried to create heaven on earth myself. I tried to play God and make for myself this magnificent Garden of Eden. But he can't. Verses 7 to 9, a consumerism gone crazy. I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I was the richest man on the planet. I had everything. You might think you've got a good sound system. You might think you've got nice Bose speakers in your house. Verse 8, I acquired male and female singers. I had the whole company of the Royal Opera House in my bathroom singing to me when I had a bath. I was that wealthy. I had a harem as well. You can see from the footnote, the translators are sparing our blushes because it's a crude term. I had literally breasts as well. It's a crude term. I went out and bought myself a load of whores. I don't know. He's being polite in the translation that we get here. So here is a man who, in the classic idiom, pursued wine, women, and song. And what did it get in verse 10? I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, uh, and yet this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Oh, 
One of the best illustrations I've ever seen of this, I just want to show you. It's unusually just a, a minute or so clip of a little video. It's, um, some will have seen it, no doubt. It's a Johnny Cash song. You may not love the music uh, of Johnny Cash, but he is one of the best-selling artists of all time. He sold over 90 million records, had his own TV show, starred in numerous films, uh, won every award under the sun, sort of crossover, different country and Western and modern music and all sorts of rock music, every award that was possible to win for his music. He was a complicated man, had a strange sort of uh, wrestling with his sort of Christian upbringing uh, for most of his life. He was addicted to recreational drugs. He had numerous adulterous affairs. His life was extraordinary in many ways. And he pursued pretty much everything you read, the teacher talk about in chapter two. And yet what we're going to watch is just the, a little bit of the video for Hurt, the last song he recorded, age 71. And it's very sad. You'll see him. It's filmed in the Johnny Cash Museum, shut and increasingly derelict. At him, of him age 71. You'll see loads and just, the, just stuffed full of all the awards and cracked platinum records that he's won, covered in dust. You'll see him surrounded by all this food, this champagne and caviar and lobster and vast banquet, but no one there to eat it with him. You'll see his wife, June, looking sadly on at this man who... Well, as he sings, what have I become? Everyone I know has gone away. You can have it all, my empire of dirt. It's profoundly sad. Three months after the video was shot, his wife died. A further four months, Johnny Cash died. So it is sort of as at the end, as he closes the piano, it's almost as if he's closing the lid on his own coffin and saying, what was that? A man wrestling with his legacy, just like the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter two. So he said, look, I chased the wind of wisdom. I've chased the wind of pleasure. None of those things do it. We'll see next time. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 23, wisdom again and also his work. He tries to find purpose, meaning in his occupation. That doesn't work. But let's just jump on to have a little preview of, uh, of the conclusion that comes. So verses 24 and 25, discovering satisfaction with God. Now, what you have to do when you read the book of Ecclesiastes is take the teacher's negative comments, of which there's a lot, alongside his positive comments, of which there are a few, but they're like the sort of shafts of light sort of illuminating what's a pretty bleak narrative otherwise. You have to hold them together. If you only focus on one, you distort what he's saying. Life is messy, and it is, in Dickensian terms, the best of times and the worst of times. Don't choose between them. The two can run side by side, is what he's saying. What does he mean here, verse 24, 25? Here's his more positive comment. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? What does he mean? 
He means center your life on God and not yourself. The great failure of the teacher is his obsession with me, myself, and I. He said, that's when it all went wrong. My wisdom will make sense of the world. Oh, it hasn't. My uh, toil, my activity, my pleasure will, will satisfy me. Oh, it hasn't. And so here he says, but, but when you center your life upon God, oh, you can find satisfaction. Of course, in one sense, the secular authorities or secular uh, studies would make the same point. There was a, a, a back in the autumn research out of University of California, uh, Berkeley, as I struggle to mispronounce it. But um, uh, anyway, there it is. Uh, September, a report came out last year. And after interviewing uh, several thousand people, the conclusion was this. <laughs> Wanting to be happy will make you less happy. Quote, if you explicitly and purposely focus on happiness, that appears to have a self-defeating quality. Happiness comes as a byproduct of other stuff. And the scriptures would say, of course, happiness comes as a byproduct of centering your life upon Christ, working for him. So these two areas we've looked at, what difference does it make when you have him at the center of wisdom and pleasure? What all the difference in the world? Wisdom. It's impossible to control life, but I'll trust in God's rule. And as someone reminded me this week, uh, I think it's a, a Charles Spurgeon quote, that God's sovereignty is a soft pillow for anxious heads. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? The knowledge that God is sovereign, it's a soft pillow for an anxious head. You can go to sleep at night and say, well, I can't control the world. And it looks just chaos to me, but, but God is in control. So I'll go to sleep and let him work out his purposes. You see how wisdom is changed when you abandon the pretense you can control the world and trust him. We had read Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, just before the sermon. And the New Testament would agree with the teacher's assessment that a heavy burden is laid on mankind. Because in, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, yeah, 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 uh, this is a fallen world. And therefore creation groans. Creation is suffering under this heavy burden of being a fallen world. But when Jesus Christ returns, he will remake a broken world and everything that is crooked will be brought straight again. That, that hope gives you the resources to cope here and now. There'll be no more grief or sorrow. Everything crooked is straightened. There is God's wisdom and pleasure. Pleasure is also transformed when God is at the center of your life. The Bible, you know, is very pro-feasting. So in the Old Testament, God's people are, are recurrently commanded to gather all together and have lavish banquets, banquets and feasts in God's presence, saying, thank you, Lord. Give thanks to you for what you've given. That Jesus enters the pages of history. God walks planet Earth. And what do we see? Most of the time, he's having a great time uh, until the last week of his life. Of course, most of the time, he's having feasts and banquets in people's houses because he's saying, I want to show you that, and, and it explicitly says, when you get to paradise, 
It's like a banquet. The first thing you do is have a feast like this because it's a picture of contentment, satisfaction. The teacher tried to create heaven on earth and you can't. You can't. Only you can find satisfaction in receiving life as a gift from the hand of God. It enables you to celebrate the good times and give thanks. Endure the hard times, trusting in his purposes and hoping for the future, a world beyond this one. Because life in this world plus death equals but life in this world, plus death, plus God's assessment on your life and the hope of a future paradise with Jesus that transforms how you live now. Center your life on him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we... Thank you for the provocative questions that the teacher asks us. Thank you that uh, in the 21st century, this side of the work of Jesus Christ, we can be absolutely confident that this life is given purpose because you assess it. And this life is not the end. There is one beyond it. So would we therefore find our pleasure in giving thanks to you for the daily gifts you give us? Would we find our wisdom in trusting you in an out-of-control world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.